Hello and welcome to the Apple Insider Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Robles, and we have all the releases like macOS Ventura, iOS 16.1 are out, and we even know features coming to 16.2. iCloud website has been redesigned, and Apple has confirmed the iPhone is going to USB-C. We're going to talk about all of that. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Collide, and joining me is my friend across the pond, William Gallagher. How's it going, William? I speak to you today humbly from number 10 and my new position as the latest prime minister <laughs> in the UK for the next hour or so. At times will be tough, yeah. but together we will make it. Yeah, yeah, I'm good. Thank you. How are you? I'm well. I saw a meme. I assume you created this meme. There's apparently a new thing now where what will last longer, a head of cabbage or the next UK prime minister? Was that you? <laughs> yes. Did you make that meme? No, we had uh, the Daily Star, not normally a newspaper one, likes to think about it in the mm-hmm. UK. It's tabloid plus, shall we say, but they did the whole, oh. will uh, our Prime Minister last longer than a head of lettuce? <laughs> and since it was a very big success, other fruits and vegetables are available. <laughs> um, some of them in office, but, you know. When mm. when the avocado starts beating out UK Prime Ministers, then you'll know you have a problem. If an avocado will last longer. In all seriousness, now, I mean, this isn't important. We've had uh, three prime ministers in three months, each one as good as the last, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's, let's be serious. Tell me something good. I'm looking forward to iOS uh, 16.2. Yes. That's what I want next. Give it to me. That is what we will focus on. We'll get to all of that very quickly. Some five-star review shout outs. Mac McAndrew, I don't know how you can manage two Macs in a name, but from the USA, thanks for the five-star review. Torbjorn HB, hopefully I said that right, from Norway, that's very nice, Dominator 1974 from the Netherlands. That's not you secretly, is it? Are you Dominator 1974 getting on a VPN? Do I sound like I can dominate anything? (laughs) I just know it's... Well, you can dominate the conversation, that's for sure. You dominate the uh, quips. Here on the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm wary now of what I say next, but okay. Yeah, War Fujin from USA, Chubadare from Great Britain. Do you know Kubadare? Yeah, we just call him Q around here, you know. Right, right. Better. Jack the Tool Boy from USA, and then Jeff Hunt 206 from the USA. Jeff Hunt said he had never rated a podcast ever before. But we peer pressured him enough into giving us five stars. And that's that's what our goal is. No, he didn't actually say that. Is that what's on Apple Podcasts now? I was forced to. It is literally in the review. You can go go to the Apple Insider Podcast and Apple Podcast, and you can read. Jeff Hunt said, you peer pressured me into doing it. But he still gave us five stars. So, you know, okay. it's very kind of him. Well, there you go. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah. Hunt. Uh, two, Jeff Hunt 206, you said. Yes. Yes, Jeff okay, Hunt 206. Far better right. than any of the 205 Jeff Hunts. <laughs> That's right. Him. That's right. To kick off the news, Apple did have its fourth quarter fiscal earnings call today, and Apple reported a $90.15 billion in revenue that is up 8% year over year. Interestingly, the iPhone continues to grow. $42.6 billion of that revenue is strictly from iPhone. iPad revenue was $7 billion. Mac revenue about eleven and a half billion. Year over year services continued to grow to nineteen point eighteen billion, but it was the second quarter on a slight decline. We will cover later in the episode the increase in the Apple subscription services and probably has something to do with that slight decline over the last couple quarters. CEO Tim Cook did say they are selling as many iPhone 14 Pro and Pro Max models that they can make. Those are definitely supply constrained, whereas the iPhone 14 is a little easier to get. My dad actually just upgraded to an iPhone 14. He actually got the red version, was able to be overnighted, 
like the next day. So definitely plenty of stock on those iPhone 14s. All right, let's get into it. I want to point you to the previous episode in your feed because special guest Jason Aten was on. He had early access to the M2 iPad Pro and the new iPad. And so he did a special episode reviewing those products and the episode dropped at the embargo time. It felt nice to actually be in on that embargo reviewed release. And Jason gave his thoughts on it. And now I, I'm also looking at my M2 iPad Pro because mine arrived yesterday. William, I assume you are, you're still jamming your M1 iPad Pro? Well, yeah, but mine's the 11 inch iPad. I think yours is the 12.9, isn't it? So I'm, you know, waiting for delivery of your last model of that uh, anytime. You might have to uh, fight my wife for that one because I was going to give that one to her. But uh, eventually, one day. Yeah, but from your wife, and forgive me to comment about it like this, but she is just like you in that she smashes up Apple Watches. <laughs> Can either of you be trusted with electronic devices? <laughs> Isn't it better? That is true. Oh, wait, is this why you keep buying new devices? You break the old ones. Suddenly it makes sense. They just bang in every doorway. I have to tell you, I'm not going to belabor this because we talked about all these iPads in Monday's episode, and, and Jason gave some great reviews. Plus, he had his written review on Inc.com. But the M2 iPad Pro, it is really, really similar to the M1 iPad Pro. I will just say that. (laughs) I did get a silver model instead of space gray, and I do like the silver look. That's nice. I also sprung for cellular because I haven't had a cellular iPad in a long, long time. The last cellular iPad I had was the iPad 3. And so I figured, you know what? Let me try cellular again. Let me see if it's worth it. Which, do you have have cellular in your iPad? No, I've never gone for it because I'm always able to tether or I'm near a Wi-Fi hotspot. But I do have friends who swear by it. So I'm in a little torn, but never torn enough. Um, have you had it long enough now to realize you were wrong to be missing out all this time? Well, I, I generally did the hotspotting. And I would say 70% of the time you can enable the hotspot from the iPad where your iPhone shows up in the Wi-Fi networks. So you can tap it and it kind of automatically activates hotspot. Your iPad connects and it's seamless. But there's that 30% of the time where it doesn't work. And you kind of have to pull out your iPhone and go to the settings, go to the hotspot, disable, enable, which it's not that much of a cumbersome exercise, but enough where I wanted to know, is it worthwhile to have the cellular? And what's interesting is when you get a cellular iPad, you can choose from a myriad of cellular providers for the iPad. And so I, at least on the model that I have, you can choose AT&T, T-Mobile, Verizon, Gig Sky, I don't even know what that is. Red T Go, True Phone. I've never heard of any of these carriers. And you can also scan a QR code for like an eSIM. So I think if you wanted to do something like, I don't know if Mint Mobile would work, but other eSIM providers, you could do that by just scanning the code. But it somehow recognized that I had an AT&T account and I was able to just add this device to my AT&T account. Of course, now I'm looking at my my cellular settings on this M2 iPad Pro and I see two AT&T postpaid accounts and now I have a concern maybe I signed up twice that would be that would be unfortunate but anyway the ease of signing up on your own cellular account is nice and it was less expensive because if I were to get a Verizon which I have AT&T on my iPhone and I wanted to try Verizon cellular on the iPad but William those plans started like 30 and 40 dollars and I was not prepared to add another 40 dollar monthly bill and adding it just to the AT&T account was like 15 dollars So I did that. We'll see. But now I'm very concerned because I see two cellular plans on this iPad and and I don't know what to do. So, But really, you you have two cellular plans, the phone and 
the iPad, and I suppose I'm sure you can't cancel the iPhone one and keep the iPad, but you can surely cancel the iPad one and keep the iPhone one. So yeah, I'm confusing myself here, but it seems all right to me that you've got two listed as long as the sums add up to what you're expecting. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll have to check this after we record the podcast because uh, I don't like uh, stray lines on my cellular account. But anyway, <laughs> I'll, I'll let everyone know how the cellular data built in maybe differs from the hotspot. But MTopad Pro, I mean. I'm going to be editing this podcast you're listening to on it. And so next week I'll be able to give my thoughts on what it's like to edit. I did try the Apple Pencil Hover in basically the two or three places that it allows you to do it. Notes gives you a slight preview of what you're about to draw. I downloaded Procreate, but I couldn't see or figure out how to figure out hover stuff there. And then otherwise, basically things will like slightly enlarge or highlight as you hover your pencil over it and before you click it. So even if you're just on the homepage of your iPad, you can kind of swipe the Apple Pencil across the dock at the bottom, and all the little icons magnify a little bit. It's a nice, uh, satisfying animation, but really needs, I think, developers to start incorporating the hover effect for it to be really useful. A Pixelmator has added it to both Pixelmator for iPad and Pixelmator Photo for iPad. I'm sure others have, but um, their demos of what we're doing looked very interesting. If you had an appropriate iPad hmm. and pencil, but you know, okay, not all of us do. No, it's fine. <laughs> well, I'll try Pixelmator as well. I'll give more thoughts next week as I have it for a week. It's it's nice, it's, you know, M2 iPad Pro. It's it's a lot like the M1, a little faster, and you can hover the pencil over it. Actually, serious question. You say it's faster. Can you feel that speed difference in sort of general use? Like, I don't know if it's a placebo effect or a new device effect. The only place I would really feel it is in Ferrite, where I edit all the podcasts. And it, it does feel right. a little, maybe like a hair snappier. And again, my M1 iPad Pro, it's been my iPad for the last year and a half. It is definitely full of audio files in Ferrite. You know, there's like stuff on it, which shouldn't affect the speed too much, but maybe feels like slightly hair faster, but we'll see. Uh, I'll give it a week before I yeah. do my final judgment, because like exporting files from Ferrite, I think will be the most telling activity for speed. But what I want to know, William, is if this new rumored iPad, which a report came out, this is from the information, and a leaker says that Apple could reveal a 16-inch iPad in the fourth quarter of next year. So one year from now, we could possibly have a 16-inch, and other rumors, like Ross Young even implying that Apple has 14 and 16-inch XDR displays in their MacBook Pros, and they could very not easily, but they could then just transpose those sizes to iPad Pro and maybe bring it to 14 and 16 inch iPad Pro. And then the iPad Air then comes in at the 11 inch. A lot of people were very excited for this large iPad. Christopher Lawley, who's been on the show before, who's iPad first user, Federico Vitici, they were all very excited about this very, very large iPad, which I would think really loses the portable aspect of what an iPad is. But I'd be curious, William, would a larger iPad tempt you at all? Well, I'm actually doing two things about this. I am saving up, and I'm thinking, what in the world would I actually use it for? <laughs> but I know I want one. The thing is, I wouldn't have said I would, except I remember when the original 12.9-inch iPad came out, and I was required to get it for a certain job, and I was terrified carrying this huge thing around. Mm. But as you would work on something, it just it felt like your hands were in the application. You weren't holding glass and touching it. You were kneading the bread. <laughs> 
under your fingers all right very immersive <laughs> thing and i really like my 11 inch ipad pro but i miss having a 12.9 mm. one i mean i imagine it's got to be pretty expensive oh my goodness when they do it so i'll save a lot <laughs> but i mean it would be probably as expensive as a 16 inch macbook pro if not more depending on configuration <laughs> but if there are any app developers listening i would love for someone to make a dough needing app this way, once the iPad 16-inch releases, William could take that 16-inch screen and feel like he is truly <laughs> kneading the bread on the screen of the iPad. And listen, with hover effects, maybe it can sense your hands hovering above the screen and you can even have like hover dough rolling. Yeah, funny you should say this because I checked back into the patents or the patents if you like and uh, in 2019 apple was granted one for a thing that looks like it's what has become hover mode mm. but as right in there alongside all of the stuff with a pencil or a stylus as they called it there were references to doing gestures as well now none of that seems to have happened mm. yet but they've got the patent for it they were thinking about it maybe you're right maybe you've glommed on to exactly what apple's going to do next glommed on what a, what a Yes. What a word. I think that's actually quite an American phrase, isn't it? I don't know where I got that Glommed from. Glommed on, okay. Yes, I like it. So. Yeah, I don't know if I like it, but okay, I'll, I'll receive that. Glommed on. <laughs> so that's the latest rumor. We'll see a year from now, which also, you know, I'm just going to throw this in right here. A year from now, we should also see the next iPhone with USB-C. We talked about on past episodes how the European Union has now legislated that any mobile device needs to have a USB-C port. And there was a Wall Street Journal interview with Joanna Stern. She had Craig Federighi and Greg Joswiak. And Joswiak confirmed basically that the future iPhone will be USB-C. Joswiak said, quote, we think the approach would have been better environmentally and better for our customers to not have a government be that prescriptive, but will have to comply. And so meaning Apple will have to put USB-C in the iPhone. Now, a lot of rumors are saying it will happen next year with the iPhone 15. Technically, the mandate is for 2024. Apple maybe could get away with putting it off for another year, but it sounds like they're going to comply. And a year from now, we should have USB-C on the iPhone. William, how do you feel about that? Completely unconcerned. I just plug it into whatever <laughs> cables around and I charge it and I go. It'd be nice. But I remember when we when the 30-pin connector changed. I seemed to have so many 30-pin connector cables yep. and no lightning ones. And then suddenly, I don't know what happened to all the old 30-pin. They were gone. And now recently, just in the last few weeks, I found I seem to have loads of USB-C cables and no lightning cables when I need them. And I don't know why. <laughs> so just one. <laughs> yeah would be nice i do think so apple were very grumpy about this it seemed to me in that interview and, and i see their point and there's a, a lot of arguments about uh, the waste that will be created by switching the regulation is really woolly about what happens with i don't know is it usb d or something when something better comes along the regulations are really soft about it but you know apart from that i good on the eu for at least trying to do something all of it. i speak as someone who's apparently left the eu unwillingly. Right. so brexit you know, right. britain brexit and all that but you know good on them i might disagree with the details but i think the intention is great i think it's going to be interesting what it means for the entire product line because the iphone is not the only device that still has lightning yeah and if the iphone is forced to go USB-C, which is Apple's biggest selling device, meaning the most pervasive, you know, of, of any Apple product, the iPhone is the one device where a majority of Apple customers use it. And so if that goes to USB-C, 
Other devices that those iPhone customers would buy, say AirPods, should also go to USB-C if Apple were going to allow their customers to use the same cable to charge their iPhone as they do their AirPods, which I think is one of the reasons why they're both lightning right now. And so we'll be curious the timeline for those kind of peripheral devices, everything from the Magic Keyboard and Magic Mouse to the MagSafe Duo to AirPods casing to AirPods Max, like all of those things are still lightning connectors. And it will be interesting to see, will it all just be in next fall when the iPhone 15 is announced? That's USB-C. Every AirPods case will then be USB-C. <laughs> Maybe we'll finally lose the first generation Apple Pencil and we'll have a USB-C first generation Apple Pencil. I don't know. I think that's an interesting thought. Like, I'm curious what, what that timeline will be like. You think it'll just be all at once? I can't see it being all at once, but who knows? Oh, there is one thing we do know, actually, because Britain has said this, has stated this. Britain will not require Apple to go to USB-C. <laughs> and I imagine that's a big relief <laughs> at Apple Park. That's, you know. Um, wow. So they really came out and said that, like, just to be different from the EU? Yes, they did. We are not following the EU's mandate, they said. Uh, it's a few months ago now, and things change in Britain quite a lot, actually, uh, and yet don't. So who knows? But that is the uh, currently official state of government position. That's kind, yes. of that's, that's kind of funny. That feels like being contrary just for the sake of being contrary. But It really does, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, okay, sure. So the other thing that came from this Wall Street Journal interview was Craig Federighi commented on why they chose not to build an iMessage application for Android. And this goes to the whole RCS conversation. Apple should either have adopted RCS when people still think they should, or at least should have built an iMessage app for Android. Federighi said if they had focused on building an application, an iMessage app for Android, they would need to have a lot of customers in order for it to be successful. That would have taken an amount of effort and energy in the development of that application for Android. And he said that might have hurt the innovation that they did on iMessage for iPhone and iPad platforms. I feel like building the iMessage application for Android, yeah, Apple's a fairly large company. They probably could have done that without sacrificing too much of the innovation on it. I mean, it is a different platform having to be written in a different language. For that to be the reason, I do think the broader reasoning of if we wanted it to be successful and Apple wants any of its endeavors to be successful, it would have to attract a lot of users and to attract a lot of Android users to download another messaging app just to use iMessage, that would have taken a significant amount of everything, you know, probably marketing and exposure and making the app really, really good, better than other messaging apps on the platform. And that might have required like also integrating with SMS on Android, which that could have taken a lot of developmental effort. I'm not really sure. So it was just another kind of like hand wavy, like it just was not valuable enough of an endeavor could have quote unquote hurt the innovation on iPhone. And I think it just solidifies the fact that iMessage is definitely not coming to Android and no mention of RCS either. So what were your thoughts on that? I actually found, I mean, Craig Frederick is very convincing. Sure. This all pivoted as well as on um, why hasn't Apple done it, on the fact that seemingly he said back in 2013 that what it would do was give people an excuse to buy Android instead of iPhone. <laughs> and uh, that's painted as Apple 
try to look after its bottom line. But I look back at those original emails and all the points he made there about the effort it would take, the worth to the customers they got, the customers they would get. He was saying those same points then. He did say that about uh, iPhone and Android users, but he, he's singing the same tune uh, for nine years now. Plus, a thing that never seems to get considered is that outside of the States, this is not an issue at all because everybody uses WhatsApp which is incredible, <laughs> right. but you know, it's just, you know, Apple will not get messages to take over outside the US. And I know the US is, I mean, it's not exactly a small market and it's their home market, but all of this tussle over RCS, I mean, one day if Google gets around to doing RCS as well, maybe things will change, but right now it's going to stay as it is. And I don't know that anybody cares as much as people think they do. <laughs> Am I wrong there? Mm-hmm. I think you might be right. I think Google is trying to make people care by constantly talking about it whenever they announce a phone or like by having that entire website landing page on RCS. But I really don't hear people talking, especially don't hear Android users talking about, oh man, yeah, I wish Apple would adopt RCS. That I've never yes. heard those words yes. spoken out of the mouth of an Android user unless they're like MKBHD. You know what I mean? Like unless they're like super high profile literally in the world trying to do the dual lifestyle but any common user of android like just people that i know they've never been like yeah i wish the they would adopt rcs i have one friend and hello jared if you're listening he's like a pixel user like he's used only the pixel phone since like the pixel 3 or 4 and he said yeah it'd be nice if they did rcs that was the one person i guess i could say who said it but other than that never I'm sure you have more than one friend. Believe it or not, William. Don't you? I mean, counting you, that's two. That's two friends. You need to get out more, don't you? No, I'm just kidding. I have a a, a couple more friends. All right, so let's talk about some of the software updates because macOS Ventura is officially available for everyone that came out this past Monday. iOS 16.1 and updates for TVO 16.1, HomePod, all of that. We've talked about the features and stuff before, but as far as like first thoughts on using these things, one... I have, I throw caution to the wind as soon as like the public release is available. Like I don't wait for any kind of bug fix. I put macOS Ventura right on my Mac studio, my main production machine that has like third-party plugins and all this kind of stuff. Like I just, I don't care what breaks, although I probably should care sometimes, but I will say to Apple's credit and to developer credits, people like Isotope that makes some like audio plugins I use, updating to macOS Ventura, not a single part of my workflow was affected Everything, quote unquote, just worked and it was like I was still using the same Mac, but with new great features. And of all the things, one, the settings app, I know you have been, quote unquote, accidentally running the beta for months, you know, because somehow that just happens to you. But now that I have the settings app here on macOS Ventura, I guess I get why people felt so strongly about it. But I'm also kind of like, it's fine. Like it's, it's the settings app. Like, what's the big deal? Uh, I have a problem with the settings app. And uh, I I actually, I am more than happy with the redesign. I think it's clearer. I think it surfaces certain things. You're so familiar with some things where they are that you have to search for them now. But apart from that, I think it's clearer. It's just, there was this bug that ran all the way through the beta process of every time I would restart a Mac, there would be three or four apps that would have to ask me to grant them permission to do various things. Oh, yes. And I already had many, many times... And system settings itself said, yes, you have given them permission, but still I had to 
deny them permission and give them permission again. That bug lasted all the way through the summer and it was fixed last Thursday <laughs> and broken again last Friday. And uh, I'm now on the public release and I've still got that problem. It doesn't, it mustn't be affecting everybody because I'm not hearing other reports about it, but it drives me spare every morning for it. And it seems a peculiar thing since system preferences, it's a, a reskinning, if you like. Um, right. Or Apple script things that control system settings apparently haven't had to be rewritten. So everything's where it was. It just looks different so i don't know why this book bug would be coming up but as for the usability of it yeah i think it's actually much better so yeah and, and i think it's fine I, like i don't spend a lot of time in those settings apps so it's not like i'm constantly like shaking my fist in the air like why can't i find this? i do find the search to be better like a lot of times i keep looking for login items because i want to remove things that yeah. open every time i restart my computer and when i search just use the search box it works well and I mean, the last search box was okay in system preferences and it would kind of like highlight where you should go to find the thing you're searching for. But I do feel like the system settings now, when you search for something, you can click the result and it will just bring you right to that setting that you're looking for. And so I feel like search is a little improved on that. Now, I think the really standout feature of macOS Ventura is the clock app. No, I'm just kidding. But there is a clock app. <laughs> you can now like set timers and alarms and stuff. So that's a thing. But Continuity camera, I mentioned it before, but I've been making several videos about it and just really putting it through its paces. And continuity camera is just so good. The ease and speed at which the iPhone connects as a camera, yeah. it's rock solid. Like the latency is so low. I mean, that's really the Apple magic when it goes into a feature. That latency is just imperceptible almost. And there's so many great products now. The Belkin MagSafe mount and this was actually a question from listener Andy L. What are the best monitor mounts for using the iPhone as a webcam now that you have continuity camera? The Belkin one is amazing. You've probably seen it everywhere. I'll put a link in show notes. But MagSafe, just attach it to the back of your phone and then has this little lever where you can put it on the laptop lid. So convenient. It works great. And you can use it as a little kickstand too, which is kind of nice. But there's that one. And then on Amazon, there's lots of clip your iPhone to your monitor or desktop. So if you have a larger monitor, I will put, this one is clear look. It's like 12 bucks, but it basically it's a plastic thing, clips to your monitor, holds your iPhone. You can use it as a webcam. So if you have a bigger one or you want to use it with your studio display, you can use that, but it is so good. I will say, if you want to use continuity camera for online recording, like using a product like Riverside, or you want to do it for other things based in a web browser, that can be pretty buggy. Google Chrome is not recognizing the iPhone camera right now. And Microsoft Edge, which, William, we're going to talk about web browsers in a few minutes because, my goodness, I wish you could choose the things that go viral on Twitter, but you cannot. You cannot. And, and, and I, I tweeted something uh, disparaging about Microsoft Edge, and I was surprised. I was surprised at, the, at the, <laughs> the blowback that I got. But we'll get to that in a second. So if you're having issues using it in a web browser, I would recommend Brave, the Brave web browser. You can choose your iPhone for continuity camera in pretty much anything that I've used there. And it is seamless, works great. Google Meet, Riverside, whatever. And then if you use Google Chrome or Microsoft Edge, I actually had to download the beta versions of the browsers and then Continuity Camera would work. So it seems like they're working on incorporating it into the official build, but it's not there yet. It's a little buggy. So I would try the betas or just download the Brave web browser because it works great there. Have you used it at all? Do you have any reason to use Continuity Camera? 
I tried it out just to see the, the the physics of it. I thought it was so deeply impressive, but I haven't actually had to use it. I have used, um, no, excuse me, I'm thinking of desk view. Desk view with this, it is changing the laws of physics, isn't it? The camera looking down as well as out for it, this amazing thing. Actually using it as a webcam, yes, I did a webinar using it, and the picture quality from my end was so much better than any of the cameras have tried before. I would like to carry on, but the way my system is, the wide monitor, the quite tall, desk basically i had to have them the phone in front of my face and <laughs> peer around it every now and again to see is anybody still there <laughs> right right i will say i'm glad you mentioned desk view because that was shown off during the keynote and that is the one aspect of continuity camera that's real finicky if you want to use desk view oh. the only application it really works natively in is the facetime so if you're doing a facetime call and you're using continuity camera desk view will you can enable it and the other person you're on a call with can see it. But if you want to record both yourself speaking and your desk, like if you're trying to make a YouTube video where you talk about a product and you using your iPhone to record both you and the desk, there is no good way to do it. And even Apple support article says you basically have to open the desk view window, which is like this standalone app that you get with macOS Ventura. Like when you go to the control center, you click the video effects, you can turn on portrait studio lighting for continuity camera, all that. Then you click on desk view. It opens a new window, which is actually an app called desk view. But that application has no record button. Like there's no way to record the direct video as a file. Apple tells you in the support article right now to do a screen recording of that app. Ouch. So you can have that as a video. Surely I imagine that will change in the future where you can at least have a record button where you can record the desk view and the actual continuity camera as separate video files and you can like sync them together later. But right now there is no good option for that. You have to literally do a screen recording to capture the desk view video, which is kind of meh. It's pretty meh. Yeah, that's a bit pants really, isn't it? But, a bit what? Would okay. you say pounce? Pants. It's a. Uh, I think it's British. P a n t s. Like the new Doctor Who episode. That was pants. You know that sort of thing you Wait, say really. Okay, pants, but not pants like the things you wear. This is a different. Uh, it's the same word, different connotations, and I don't know history of its etymology. Yes. What am I saying? Back in its etymology, maybe there was some connection because okay. you know what we're like with trousers, trousers here right, in the UK. Right. And you, and you don't. Well, never mind. I'm not going to go. <laughs> I'm not going to go into more British etymology. I'm going to get myself in trouble. Also, sixteen point one was launched. The big new feature is Live Activities and iCloud Shared Photo Library. I haven't set up iCloud Shared Photo Library yet or done anything with it. Have you tried anything with it? No, I, I find iCloud Photos really confusing, <laughs> actually. I don't know why. I should, you know, look into it. But it's like, Well, it's not like you write for an Apple journalist website. I mean, it's not like you have to. <laughs> well, fortunately, nobody's asked me yet, I don't think. Or I, bl I bluffed if they did. You know, we actually had questions on Twitter where people were asking, how does it work with iCloud storage? And do photos that you get from iCloud shared photo library, like from family members, how does that count against your storage? And I will be explicitly clear. I have zero idea how that works. I do not, I do not know. You know, I saw the pop-up after updating 16.1, like iCloud shared photo library, set it up now. I dismissed it as you do. I have no idea, like, even where to go to set it up. Like, I guess it's in the settings app. Like I just opened the photos app on my iPhone. I don't see the option anymore. And so I guess I go to, and I'm sure we have an article on this on appleinsider.com. I'll put a link to that so you can set it up. Hopefully not written by either of us, but okay. Um. <laughs> not written by me, I can tell you that. But I really, like, I really don't. Oh, here we go. Shared library. Okay, so if you go to the settings app on your iPhone, you go to photos, 
There you have shared library and there's a setup button and you can set it up there. So go to the settings app, photos, shared library, and then you can combine photos and videos with the people closest to you, have one shared library. So again, I've not done this yet, but that'll be a follow up for next week. I'll set, I'll set it up and I will go more in depth on it. I'll invite William to share all of the screenshots that I have uh, and all the pictures of my M2 iPad Pro, and, and he can see all those. Yeah, uh, race to do that. That would be, <laughs> that would make my weekend. Yes, please. Mm. Wonderful, wonderful. And then also live activities, which everyone's very excited for. There are a lot of apps that have updated to support it. Carrot Weather, notably Flighty. I think that's like the one example that people were really gravitating towards. Slopes is like a skiing app that supported it, which is really cool. But the live activities, you know, it's, I think it's really going to be beneficial for like sports games and apps and then like food delivery services like DoorDash or Grubhub where you can literally see the progress. Those apps have not really updated for it yet. I tried Starbucks, like I did a mobile order uh, for research, you know, not just for my enjoyment. You know, this was for pure research. <laughs> and I, I did that, but there was no live activities there. They had an app update that day, like after live activities launched, but it did not include live activities. It was for some uh, something else. So I've not really seen much action from live activities. I don't think I have any apps that will do it right now or any use cases for it. Have you experienced it anywhere? Like watching some football, maybe? <laughs> Not oh, yeah, at okay. all, because uh, I just thought that's for sports. I'm not interested in sports. I'll never use it. But then when you said about a flight tracking app, actually, suddenly, yes, I can see that being useful. Uh, so I will try it out for those the next time I fly. Yes, very good. Yeah, and th That looks really cool. Like basically flighty, once it hits three hours before your flight, it will persistently show information about your flight right on the lock screen if you have always on display or on the home, like the lock screen after you enable you know tap it or pick it up or whatever and it'll show you gates and all that kind of stuff so pretty cool pretty cool right. i am downloading that right now yeah well, there yes. you go it's a really a great app uh jason Nathan told me about that and i used it the last time i traveled to that podcast conference the best flight tracking app and like it told me about gate changes and information about my flight before any other app before even american airlines did in their apps like flighty is the app to get if you're going to be traveling. Highly recommend. Now, 16.2, the first developer beta was made available right after 16.1 launched. And with it comes the app that Apple talked about at WWDC, Freeform for the iPad. And also Stage Manager on iPad will get external display support in 16.2. And there's also big changes to HomeKit, at least the back end of HomeKit. And we talk about that on HomeKit Insider on Monday's episode. You could tune in for that. But it sounds like, William, you were excited for 16.2. What about it was appealing to you? No, I just wanted to get my head out of all the politics that are going on. Oh, very good. And that was the thing I grabbed onto. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm very interested in Freeform. I haven't used it yet, but what I've seen of it, it seems oddly familiar. Like we've seen bits of it in other Apple apps over the years. It's just something reminds me of Apple Notes, something reminds me of Pages. Um, yeah. yeah, I think it's going to be... I'm very intrigued to use it on my own for uh, brainstorming. See, does it work as an individual tool? But then, of course, there's all this collaboration thing where you could just mess up everybody else's <laughs> ideas. Yeah. We'll collaborate on something, yeah. William. We'll use Freeform together. I was going to install the developer beta when it came out. I think it was either Monday or Tuesday, but I knew I had my M2 iPad Pro coming Wednesday. And if I did the 16.2 beta on my M1 iPad, I wouldn't be able to do device to device transfer on the new one because I would have to then put the beta on the new one. So I, I refrained. So I did not try Freeform just yet. It's not, it wasn't available in the public beta yet either. I wasn't 
like I kind of wanted to do the public beta if it was available, which it was not yet. It might be now or very soon, but I might try it then so I could talk about it. But it looks cool. I've seen a lot of uh, pictures and little screen grabs from it. And so collaborative kind of whiteboard or white space, very free, like no hold bars, kind of like an infinite uh, whiteboard where you and other people can collaborate, draw, add stuff, images. So we'll play around with it pretty soon. We'll let you know. This episode is brought to you by Collide. Traditional endpoint security tools can make your workplace feel like a surveillance state, turn users and the IT team into adversaries, and ultimately drive your employees to work on unsecured personal devices. Well, it doesn't have to be this way. Collide is a device security solution built around honest security. Their philosophy is that employees aren't your biggest security risk, they're your biggest allies, and your relationship with them should be based on transparency and informed consent. Collide works by notifying your employees of security issues via Slack and giving them step-by-step instructions on how to resolve them themselves. Let's say they save some secure passwords on their desktop as a plain text file. Well, Collide will send them a message via Slack and say, hey, don't do that. Here's a better way to store those passwords. For IT and security teams, Collide provides the right level of visibility for Mac, Windows, and Linux devices. And it can answer your questions about your fleet security that traditional mobile device managers can't. You can meet your security goals without compromising your values. Visit collide.com slash Apple Insider to find out how. And if you follow that link, they'll hook you up with a free goodie bag just for activating a free trial. You can't beat it. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash Apple Insider. Collide.com slash Apple Insider. Our thanks to Collide for sponsoring this episode. One thing you can try right now, William is beta.icloud.com. Oh, yes. Yes, Apple completely redesigned the iCloud portal, the dashboard. You can look at it right now. You don't have to be a part of any beta program. You just go to beta.icloud.com, sign in with your current iCloud account. You don't have to worry about anything funny happening with your iCloud data. And you can see this brand new website, customizable home screen. You can actually add widgets to the iCloud home screen, whether it's your mail inbox, calendar events, reminders. You can do all of that add little widgets, rearrange everything. Really, really nice. And then there's also new pages with things like data recovery, showing you the last backups for certain data. It shows you really nice display of your iCloud drive space, what users in your family are using that space. And I thought was really interesting. It does have a option in the menu for HomeKit secure video. And I have a conspiracy. I talk about it on HomeKit Insider that maybe, hopefully one day, you'll be able to access your HomeKit secure video cameras from the iCloud web portal and maybe even download clips from there rather than having to use it from your device. So that is my hope that that little little menu thing is there, but really beautiful redesign. What do you think about it? I stumbled across it when somebody mentioned it, thought I don't use iCloud.com very often. um, And I think I would now, it looks so nice. The one time I used it was when I was in a residential presentation running a workshop for a few days, couldn't bring my computers they only had pcs needed to change something tried icloud.com i thought this is functionally fantastic and once you're in the app it's great but you wouldn't rush to do it now it looks nicer than the apps on their own in real life if you see what i mean it really does i mean it's a beautiful design aesthetic so if you haven't checked it out yet check it out like you i don't often go to icloud.com every once in a while i like seeing what is in the cloud directly as opposed to what's on a device, whether it be a contact yeah. or a calendar event. But you can ac- you can access your notes right here. You can do your iCloud mail if you have that. So, I mean, really, really nice redesign. So kudos to the team that redesigned that and look forward to what they're going to be doing with that. That's pretty cool. 
Now, talking about some other Apple changes, Apple has increased the prices of their subscriptions, William. Not not very much, but some. Apple Music went up a dollar for individual plans. It's now 11 instead of $10. The family plan went up $2. It's now 17 instead of 15 But even Apple TV Plus increased. It's now $7 as opposed to 5 which is still cheaper than many of the streaming services I'll just mention. But Apple One bundles also increased in price. Not a lot, but if you have the premier Apple One bundle, or pretty much all of these, the individual went up $2, the family Apple One subscription bundle went up 3 and same $3 for the Apple Premier One. It's now $33 instead of 30 I don't know if you've been getting emails from different streaming services like me. Everyone has raised their subscription prices probably in the last year. Disney raised their price, Disney Plus and Hulu. Netflix has raised their prices at least eight times in the last month, I believe. Yeah. So you have that. Plus they have the ad supported tier now if you're on Netflix. But subscription prices go up over time. And being a 2 to $3 increase in many of these cases, I think is reasonable. And you're still saving if you do a bundle of Apple One as opposed to paying for the individual services. So this does not bother me a ton, but interesting. And I think plays into the conversation about services revenue, uh, because as we record, Apple's earnings call is actually later today. (laughs) But talking about services revenue and having to constantly be on that growth path, I think it's interesting. How do you feel about all these increases? Enough that I got out the spreadsheet and I worked (laughs) out what I use, what I don't. Check it out. And it works out that at the moment, uh, whatever you were saving uh, using the Apple One bundle, if you were saving anything, you're saving slightly more. (laughs) It works out quite well. But... That is really clearly because Apple has updated, has risen prices on some of its services. Mm. It hasn't touched Apple Arcade, for example. And honestly, who cares? That's padding, I think, in Apple Premiere. <laughs> Apple News. Um, yeah, Apple News I like, but, you know, not, some issues. Uh, and then things like the one I use a lot, iCloud storage prices, those are the same as they have been for a very long time. And at some point, they're going to move up as well. And we'll see whether the savings persist. But right now, it's, it's Apple One is still good if you use um, at least most of the services. I worked it out that if there was one you weren't that fussed about, if you didn't care about Apple TV, I think that was the most expensive one that you could still just about make a saving mm. with a bundle if you included it. But otherwise, using them all is still worth it. Yeah, and I think it's been, what, two years since these bundles came out? So... Grief, yeah, it must be. That's yeah. not, uh, you know, two years without any increases until now. It's pretty good. Pretty good. But when it comes to services revenue for Apple, one of the big stories this past week were the ads that began appearing in the App Store with iOS 16.1. There are now ads not just in search, but also on individual app pages down at the bottom under the you might also like. And so if an app wants to advertise, let's say you make the Things app, which is cultured code, I believe, which is I love Things 3. It's a great Things app. You can do an ad or Things could pay for an ad and say in similar categories like productivity and to-do, show my app under the you might also like section of OmniFocus and vice versa. But it became apparent that some app developers, namely of games that really lean into in-app purchases, and even gambling applications, they could choose to advertise across any and all applications. And if they dumped enough money into the ads that they were paying to Apple to serve, 
that their apps would show up in really random places. And so there's been lots of Twitter threads and I had my own little Twitter thread because I was like, all right, let me see what ads do I see when I look at different applications. And it felt a little weird because I went to the Things app and you know the first app under the You Might Also Like section was Battle Bingo, a game that really probably leans into in-app purchases. And then I went to your favorite project manager, OmniFocus, and I went to the bottom and you might also like listed things three, which makes sense. People who like OmniFocus might also like things three, but also there was Goodville, the farm game and something else. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. Oh, the classics. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you're interested. The time I've spent on, what was that called again? That thing. Yeah. yeah my favorite. Good. Yes. Okay. Goodville. And then I went to Tweetbot, a popular third-party Twitter application, and under the You Might Also Like, you saw Twitterific, not an ad, makes total sense, but also in the top spot, you saw Plenty of Fish Dating, a dating application <laughs> called Plenty of Fish. For fish? Uh, well, that's... A, I quite like that uh, name, actually. <laughs> un okay. Unclear if this is for literal fish or like Plenty of Fish in the Sea uh, <laughs> kind of thing. Mm. But then there was even more kind of nefarious, not nefarious maybe, but it seemed really distasteful where there was literal gambling recovery applications. And then when you scroll to the bottom, literal gambling apps that were in the ad slot under the you might also like. And that seemed like a, like a, a significant conflict of interest if you are trying to recover from a gambling addiction and then to be served a literal gambling application that seemed distasteful. So yeah. a lot of people were tweeting about this. A lot of app developers were tweeting about this. Apple actually came out with a statement and said they are pausing gambling ads. So apps that are about gambling specifically, they are pausing any paid advertisements from those applications. So I think this is one situation where Apple did see the dust up on Twitter and developers talking about this realized that maybe those ads are being served in a place that they should not and is pulling back on that for now. Now, there's a larger question. Christopher Lawley pointed this out on Twitter where advertising in general is also a form of monetization, not just for Apple, but if you're a YouTube creator, you benefit from ads because you get a cut of the ads displayed on your content. Yes. And he asked an interesting question, namely, if you as an app developer, let's say you make OmniFocus, the Omni Group, if you get a cut of the ads that appear at the bottom of your app page, because this is like, this is on the OmniFocus app page at the bottom. Like this is not in the search. This is not under the browse section. This is when you go to the OmniFocus app specifically in the app store, this ad appears at the bottom. If you are Omni Group and you received a cut of the advertising revenue that Farmville paid Apple and you get it because it's appearing on your app page, would that change the feeling that developers have? Because they would then be earning money, basically, for an ad appearing on, quote unquote, their content. I don't think Apple would ever do that. I don't think Apple thinks of this app page as Omni Group's page at all, because Apple has been very vocal in the past about the App Store is their gift to developers, basically. <laughs> like, they run the App Store. They have made that clear. So I don't think this would ever happen. But it's an interesting question to say, would we feel differently about this? I'm curious, William, how do you feel about more advertising in the app store in general 
And then about these specifically. Oh, okay. Small question. Uh, Small question. I, I am a YouTuber. I have adverts in mind. I always make them skippable. It's an option you have because I don't want to force anybody to sit through anything they don't want to. Mm. So I get that. But as a user, as a consumer, I, I also think, I mean, let's be positive about it. Advertising is a way to surface apps that you might not have heard of before that you genuinely are interested in. If you're a things user, maybe seeing that OmniFocus exists is like, you know, the cool glass of water in a desert. You know, it could help your life really to go to the proper, the better uh, to do app. But I'm looking no, at you no, now. No, 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 I get it, I get it, I get it. On this. Uh, in seriousness, there's so many apps and surfacing any of them is so hard. So advertising guests is a way to do it. Uh, it does seem like it's gone so far that the gambling apps for it, that is Apple becoming a gambling company, really. It's profiting from every throw of the dice. It's uh, not... Mm. Not really what Apple feels like it was supposed to be there for. And the user experience, I thought particularly when you saw those ads against uh, gambling recovery ones, it felt like this is like an Android experience rather than mm. an Apple one. And I think it was undermining themselves way, uh, in for money. So. Yeah, and I, I agree. I think advertising is not wholly evil. You know, I do think good advertising targeted at a customer who would benefit from the product. That is example of a good ad. And we're not going to get into this today, but it really lo does look like Elon Musk will be going through with acquiring Twitter Friday today, as you listen to this episode, most likely. And he actually had a several screenshot tweet specifically towards advertisers of Twitter and talking about this idea where if advertising is not targeted well, it feels like an impediment to your experience on a platform. But if advertising is actually targeted well, it can feel like it enhances the experience and even informs users of something that they would benefit from that they didn't know about otherwise. I think someone who is searching for to-do apps, if they search for to-do and they go to the OmniFocus app page and they also see things and Todoist and other to-do apps, that is a benefit because they might not have discovered those apps otherwise. Because a lot of times people search for something, they'll download the first app, and then that'll be it. They'll just try that, and if they don't like it, they'll just go back to whatever built-in option there might be on their device. And so I do think advertising could be a positive experience. I think, I think Apple increasing the amount of advertising on its platforms is a could be a slippery slope. I'm looking at Apple TV Plus, you know, looking at how Netflix just enabled an ad supported tier, looking at the pricing of Apple TV Plus, I could very well see the current $7 plan becoming ad supported and then adding like a $12 ad free tier. And so I do think like this could slip into that territory, which I would not be crazy about. I do like that when you pay for an Apple One subscription, you know that you won't see any ads on any of that. So like I get the balance. You have to balance the services revenue with the experience of the consumer. I think there just needs to be more moderation and maybe there not be an option to display my ad everywhere. Even if someone is searching for headspace and mindfulness apps that you also show my game about jewels or whatever. Like I think there just needs to be a little bit more moderation in what apps are appearing where and just use the categories maybe that they're built into or whatever. But I think that would be a, a helpful addition to this whole ad program. 
I'd like to see clarity as well, because you mentioned Apple News earlier. One of the things I don't like about it is um, you can. So there's the headline. You can go through and read an article and you click a link in the article and you might get a notice saying this article requires a subscription, even though you believe that magazine, that periodical is in your Apple News Plus thing. There are some bits of it that aren't and I don't understand why Vanity Fair uh, the Telegraph both of them you will suddenly Washington Post occasionally you come up with these things where I'm reading everything else I'm paying for this it's supposed to be listed there now I can't read this bit and I try to explain that to my mother who's mm. 91 and she just mm. stops using it right. really confused so. yeah so I think I think it's a balance that needs to be struck and I hope Apple puts some effort into that because I think the app store is a big deal. I mean, especially for developers, you know, Marco Arment, he talks about on ATP, he does advertising in the app store for overcast because he wants people to discover his app. And it's something that is necessary for him to do. So he continues to grow the user base of his application. And again, when it comes to discovery, yes, you can hope some like news outlet, like Apple insider covers your app and it gets exposure that way. But I think that advertising option is good that developers have that at their disposal and can at least try it out and see, will this benefit my bottom line? So I think like you're saying clarity and just a little more moderation in what ads appear where I think will be helpful. So I want to answer a couple of listener questions. We'll actually ask the audience or maybe even you, William, if you know, but talking about Apple Watch fall detection specifically, there was a recent article where a doctor actually fell and the Apple Watch automatically contacted emergency services because fall detection worked. And this doctor credits his life to the Apple Watch contacting emergency services for him, which is amazing. Wow. But we actually had two listeners reach out. Nikolaj asked a question about fall detection. He said he's very fond of you, William, by the way. So that, that's Nikolaj. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he, he mentioned you, you specifically. Oh, yes. That's made my day. Thank you. And then another listener, Damien, also asked about fall detection. One, Nikolaj was asking... Does fall detection on a Apple Watch set up with family setup, meaning there's not an iPhone also attached to the Apple Watch, does fall detection work and can it send a notification to the person who set up the family watch? That I don't think is a thing. I think if you set up a family watch, if you set up an Apple Watch with family setup for like a child, I think it might have fall detection and it will contact emergency services, but it does not send a notification to the other family members. I think you can set up an emergency contact and I think it might send auto messages if yeah, there was an accident. It will. You said it will? Fall detection will, as well as contacting emergency services, will send a message to uh, your emergency contacts. And I don't know where you set that up, but you know, partner next of kin, that kind of thing. So it will do that, yes. And it's the same even for a family setup Apple Watch? The way I heard about it, I wasn't for family uh, setup at all. It feels like that's a different thing. It's a watch detects a fall, will send a message right. to an emergency contact. So I don't think that needs to be part of family setup. Um, I don't know whether they uh, there's an issue of it. Can you have multiple people informed right. or just one? But um, at least one can be informed. Okay, I think so too because when i've set up watches for my kids with family setup there is the emergency contact option and if it's a newer apple watch with fall detection i believe that also works like crash detection would work with a family setup apple watch i believe the fall detection would as well but then the second question is this is from damien his mom unfortunately fell she's elderly she had an apple watch series 6 which supposedly has fall detection but the Series 6 did not detect that she had fallen. She had fallen hard enough to actually injure herself. 
she's seems to be okay now, but he is wanting to find an Apple Watch that would have caught that fall detection. So he was wondering if fall detection is improved in newer Apple Watches, which if she has a Series 6, you have the Series 7 and 8 to compare that with. Yeah. As far as sensors, you do get, I mean, you get like the blood oxygen in Series 7, and you do get like the crash detection sensors in the Series 8. I don't know if that would help with fall detection. Oh, actually. But I don't know, William, do you have any thoughts for him? Uh, I know one of the reasons crash detection is is possible now is that there are improved accelerometers in it, so presumably more sensitive, which would presumably notice that. So yeah, uh, I didn't know that it went back as far as Series 6. My first thought is to check that um, his mom's um, age is in there. Uh, oh, right. You can choose to switch it on, but if you enter a birth date that makes means you're over a certain age, and I don't know what that age is, uh, it automatically switches on. Um, maybe that's not been set up for it, in which case it wouldn't be a case of changing watches. But, you know, I'm sure that's been looked into. So That's a good, that's a good point. I'm going to put Apple's support article in the show notes as well because you do have to enable fall detection and you have to tell it that it's always on instead of just only during workouts, because that is a new option now where oh, I didn't yeah, know fall that. detection right. might just be enabled during workouts. So I would do fall detection always on. And like William said, doing the age of the user will be uh, critical. Actually, if you do a- ages 55 and over, fall detection automatically enables. But I think having the age in there will also help the watch maybe judge. I have no hard evidence for that, but I would make sure the age is accurate. So I can't guarantee it would be better than the Series 6, but because of the events, Damien, in you know, your mom falling, maybe try a Series 8 and see if it will be any better equipped to, with the accelerometers to, to handle that fall. Supposedly it's Series 4 and later detects a fall. Apple says a hard fall, quote-unquote, for the Series 4, but Series 8 might, might be better with the improved sensors. Two last things very quickly. Number one, I've rediscovered Hazel, William. Yay, good. And it's it's wonderful. Yes. I, <laughs> I had not installed it on my Mac Studio because I was like, you know, I was trying to do really, really minimum amount of apps. And then because of continuity camera, I had to install Microsoft Edge beta and Google Chrome beta. And I was like, I want Hazel when I delete these apps <laughs> yes. from my applications folder to get every last file off of my Mac that is connected with these things. Microsoft auto update. I don't want any of it. So I said, all right, let me try Hazel one more time. I've set up a couple rules too, just for very simple things. And it's wonderful. Hazel is great. And I just want to tell everyone they should try Hazel. That's all. Seconded and thirded and fourthed. (laughs) Fourthed. It's wonderful. And lastly, I just have to mention, because it's tangentially related, I had to try Edge. It is the first time I had ever downloaded Mm. Microsoft Edge, ever. Have you ever tried Microsoft Edge, William? Yeah, when it first came out, um, okay, I stick with Safari, but I actually thought Edge seemed pretty good, and they have the collections feature I thought looked very promising. Uh, you don't sound like you were sold. My tweet basically said my top web browsers are Safari number one, Brave number two, Chrome number three, number ninety nine is a literal stone tablet, and number one hundred is Microsoft Edge. Now I might be a little exaggerated, <laughs> but. Downloading Edge, it's a Chromium browser, meaning it's basically the same engine as Google Chrome. Brave uses the same engine. So in literal browsing, sure, Microsoft Edge is fine. 
It's just as good as Chrome, which arguably could be better than Safari, depending on the website. So yeah, browsing ability, fine. I found the design of Edge and the fact that I had a toolbar at the top, I had a toolbar on the right-hand sidebar, I had a weird row of icons on the left. I said, this is crazy. It's just so much going on. I just, I, I didn't spend a lot of time on it, but I really thought it was just kind of insufferable. And when you go to the set, oh, first of all, when you download Edge, once it's downloaded and you open the installer, it takes over your Mac screen. It goes into this like full screen mode that does not give you the little green button to shrink it. And you have to complete the installation before you can even get out of that. Like that felt just totally like an affront yeah. to the experience. And then it's, it's like Windows. God. Well, exactly. Okay. And that's the other thing is it definitely does not feel like a Mac app. It feels very much like a Windows application, which I would not say of Chrome and other web browsers. Those web browsers feel like Mac apps when you're using it for the most part. There's slight differences. But Edge wholly feels like I'm running a Windows application on the Mac. Microsoft, again, pretty large company, knows that Edge is going to be downloaded on Mac computers, could do a little bit of work maybe round some corners at least or take out some of those 18 toolbars. So that was my experience with it. I was not crazy about it. God, I always remember Microsoft Word where the way you could display so many toolbars. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you couldn't actually see a space to write. Ah, those were the days. They had to, yeah, they, they had to change the names. They said you have the ribbon up here and then you have the toolbar above the ribbon and then you have Clippy. Because I guess now we have Clarice the dog cow. But yeah. I'll take the dog cow. Yeah, that's, that's different. different. That's yeah. yes, exactly the same. And I also just wanted to yes. mention many people now have responded to my tweet. Many defending Microsoft Edge. That's fine. But others recommending browsers I had never heard of. I've heard of some web browsers, but there is something called Vivaldi. That is a web browser you can use. Arc, like ARC.net. I'd never heard of that. Have you used any of these crazy browsers? No, I've used Safari Technology Preview. I thought I was going out on the edge there. <laughs> but no, no there are please. so many. Uh, apparently like arc, you have to fill out a form and it's kind of like an invite thing. Vivaldi, you can download right now. Looks fine, but people were like swearing by these third-party browsers that I had never heard of. And I found it to be quite interesting. So I will put a link to that tweet thread. If you guys want to uh, peruse the many random browsers that people were recommending to me and defending Microsoft edge. And I would not defend edge. I don't care for it. That's just me. I don't remember all these problems when I tried it out. So maybe it's been improved. <laughs> In that way. <laughs> yeah, just but, install yeah. it. You let me know how that install goes. And finally, finally, uh -huh. the last time we were on the show, this happened right after Robbie Coltrane tragically passed away. And people were asking if, if you knew him or you had any thoughts on him. So I just wanted to give you the floor for a moment if you want to say anything about Robbie Coltrane. Well, I, I deeply admired him because starting out with Tutti Frutti by uh, John Byrne <laughs> in the 80s, working with Emma Thompson, just an amazing BBC drama. Uh, I didn't know him, no, I never met him, but I'm friends with uh, Barbara Flynn, who worked with him on Cracker, and uh, she was exactly as upset as you could yeah. imagine. Um, I was really shocked. I mean, I, I know he's in his 70s, apparently, but it couldn't seem possible that he was in his 70s. And even then, it seems a lot far too yeah. young. You know? And he was. Famously in Harry Potter movies, and he was in a James Bond movie, The World Is Not Enough, and obviously many other things. So, yes, goodbye to Robbie Coltrane. If you can possibly look up Tutti Frutti, it's an extraordinary 1980s joyous uh, drama. It's, uh, I mean, joyous, yes, but so overwhelmingly upsetting at times. It's a brilliant piece of writing and a very complicated performance by Emma Thompson, mm. by Robbie Coltrane, by Hawkeye. So, 
Yeah, BBC Tutti Frutti. Very good. Yeah. And you'll probably have to scroll past all of the James Brown Tutti Frutti references. Yes. That's and uh, was it you No, know, no. Is it uh, Little Richard? Who who did Tutti Frutti? Oh, uh, since that show, I can only think of the Majestics, right. the name of the band. And it, it was and Little Richard. I'm sorry. Little Richard has the song Tutti Frutti. And so if you just Google Tutti Frutti, yes, you'll see Little Richard for a long time. Scroll down. Maybe just do Tutti Frutti, Robert Coltrane, and that will come then later. So... TV miniseries, I see it here. I'll put the IMDb for Tutti Frutti in the show notes. And uh, listeners, let us know any questions you have, any thoughts on the Apple Watch fall detection or anything we talked about, ads in the App Store. You can tweet at William and myself. That is in the show notes. And you can support the show. All those links are there as well. As always, thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next time.